I can say with all certainty that this is the final episode of The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. This is The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, Greg Cody. So the news of the day, I think, in sports is that Conor McGregor has retired from the UFC. And I don't think anyone actually believes that he's retiring. And the reason I'm bringing this up before you even speak, Greg Cody, do you think if you announced that this podcast is retiring, we could get some momentum building and then maybe the next next week's episode would be more listened because we're just saying that we're retiring, even though we're clearly not retiring. <laughs> yeah, we should try that. Uh yeah, I read that same thing about Conor McGregor. And you know how um, in Las Vegas, you can get a bet on anything. I mean, there are odds on things you didn't even know existed. If Vegas put an over-under on Conor McGregor, all of a sudden miraculously unretiring and announcing another fight, I think the over-under would be maybe two months. You know, this is uh, an apparent buildup to something. But uh, So are you announcing this- that this is the final episode of the Greg Cody show? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, I, I can say with all certainty that this is the final episode of the Greg Cody show with Greg Cody until next week. I'll, I'll go that far. Wow. You know, we'll see how that goes. It means, about, it means about the same amount as Conor McGregor saying he's retiring. Yes. Yeah. A week from now, we'll, we'll be uh, shockingly revealing our, our grand comeback. Um, hey, welcome to the Greg Cody show with Greg Cody. And as usual, Chris Cody, you've arrived at episode 15. And um a special guest swings by today. We had on Zoo Miami's Ron McGill for a little bit last week, but not enough. So he's back. What an interesting dude, right? I mean, so many layers uh, to Ron McGill beyond his being a conservation activist in the, in the face of a major zoo. The reason that I like our interview with Ron McGill is because it's not just your stereotypical, could this bear beat up this lion? Like right. we're, 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 we're talking to him about his life, about we mentioned, we talk about his wife, projects he's worked on early in his career. So we'd kind of do a deeper dive than the standard Ron McGill interview. Yeah, this is a get to know Ron McGill in a way you don't conversation we have. Uh, just as a small example, most of our listeners probably know Ron from, you know, his weekly appearances on the Levitard show, but Millions of others, millions of others know him from what was a, a recurring role on the uh, Sabado Gigante, a giant Saturday uh, show, the long-running former Univision variety show. Uh, he, and, and also, he shares a fact about himself that is really hard to believe. So uh, stay tuned for that. Um, m- meanwhile, uh, the return of sports is, is sort of at last visible on the horizon, like uh, as my dog barks in the background. She's excited about sports. I don't blame her. <laughs> sports moves in like a ship, moving in to save us or, or at least offer us a, a damn minute's respite to all of this national anguish. NASCAR is back in Miami this week, albeit with no fans. The PGA Tour returns. NBA, NHL, MLS, they all have resumption plans in place for later this summer. And, of course, baseball drags its feet over money, which, by the way, fellas, not a good look right now. You know, make it make it happen, because if, if those other three spring summer sports start and baseball is still arguing over how many millions uh, players get, it's just I don't care who's right or wrong in the argument. It just ain't a good look Be- before we ring the bell and, and dive into this episode fully, though. I want to I want to share some feelings about our great national 
challenge brought to fore by the, the police killing of George Floyd. You know by now the unarmed, handcuffed black man whose death we, we all saw it in real time, but seemingly in, in agonizingly slow motion as a white officer kept his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Man, that's a long time. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. You know, whether it's denied by some or not, uh, the, the virus of, of racism and social injustice has been a part of our country forever. It blows my mind. There are people living in this country right now whose ancestors were slaves or lynched. It really hurt my heart the other day to hear our friend Roy Bellamy on the Levitard show talk about how and when he and his wife will have to have the talk with their daughter uh, about growing up with her skin color in America, about how to behave around policemen. Uh, she's two and a half, and already that conversation is on their minds. My granddaughter is two and a half. Christopher and, and his wife don't have to have that talk. Believe me, that's been crazy the last couple of weeks. Like I, I've been aware of this because I have a, a story of I've been pulled over dozens of times for speeding, and I, I I hardly ever get a ticket. And I've had this just pleasant experiences with cops, and and then I've been pulled over with uh, a couple black friends before, and it's just the tone of the cops. It's just totally different. The people that push back on this, all the uh, you hear a lot of white people, but this, but blah, blah blah, all lives, blah blah. blah people have no clue uh, the different life and the different experiences that black people have. And it needs, it, it just, it's difficult because I hear so many white people holding up a finger, but this and this, that, and it just makes me so sad because they're, they just, they're privileged and they don't realize it. Well, I, I think part of what's coming out of this, the notion of empathy of, of white people finally trying to understand you know, this didn't start with George Floyd, obviously. Heck, Breonna Taylor was two months earlier, two months earlier. And, and the list has been too long and, and growing too long for decades. But I think it reached a tipping point with Floyd. It, it feels and looks that way to me. I, I see in the makeup of the protests that, that white people are finally standing up for the pain of African-Americans and the prejudice and the injustice they continue to feel, um, you know, I need briefly to touch on the cause of all of these protests and then we'll move on. You know, calling out police brutality and demanding it stop doesn't mean one is anti-police. Too many say, like you referenced earlier, yeah, sure, all lives matter, but if you don't get what Black Lives Matter means and why it's important, look harder, try harder. You know, calling out police brutality doesn't mean I'm anti-police, just like Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the anthem was never about disrespecting the flag, despite what True Breeze uh, said before he, uh, <laughs> his immediate mea culpa. You can't dismiss or underplay this situation by playing the bad apple card. Uh, that's not good enough. There are obviously too many bad apples. You know, when, when you apply for a badge and a gun, police departments need to vet you more carefully. And, and if you turn into a bad cop, you need to be fired more quickly and, and held fully accountable for the crime that got you fired. You know, the other day in Buffalo, we saw another video, a cop shoving a protester backward. The man falls and hits his head on concrete, a pool of blood forms. Two cops get suspended. Now dozens of other Buffalo cops have resigned in protest of the suspension of two guys who clearly 
were overly aggressive to a, a protester who turned out to be a 75-year-old man. Good cops need to step forward and, and feel obligated to call bad cops bad and disassociate themselves from the bad ones who give all of law enforcement a bad name. The part that frustrates me the most about this is, and, and, and I kind of feel it towards the last you know four or five minutes that we've done on this, I think it's good that we're saying it and I think people need to hear it, but I just feel like people are so stuck in their ways, us included. Like we feel how we feel and nobody, no all lives matter person is going to change our minds about it. And I don't feel like we're changing anyone else's mind. I feel like people are so stuck in their ways. That's why the Drew Brees stuff, while I don't know if, you know, that was just him butt covering PR or whether he actually had that moment of reflection and conversations with black people that changed his mind. But it just seems outside of Drew Brees, it seems like nobody's changing their mind on this issue. If you're an all lives matter person, they're listening to what we just said, and they're still an all, all lives matter person. And that makes me really sad. It does. Um, you know, we're, we're more polarized as a country than, than ever before. What used to be referred to as middle ground doesn't even exist anymore. You know, you can't see my side. I can't see your side. Blue states, red states. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're opposites in this country now. We're divided and um, something needs to bring us together. And the great legacy of George Floyd, if it happens, is going to be that he was the tipping point. And, and it, it took... But there were many before him. There was outrage for Trayvon Martin. You know, yeah. there's been many. And it's just... And, and we get... And, and I, I, but to your, to your point, like they're like, and, and this, to Roy's point, you mentioned Roy Bellamy and he said how he's been moved by, you see Germany now, other countries are protesting this issue right now. And you, you didn't really see that before. So that oh. does give hope. And, and to your point, I, I hope that this is the tipping point, but it just, yeah. I have hesitation because I feel like we've been here before, not to this extent. Cause I feel like, you know, social media and the protesting seems to be at a different level this time. But I just fear that three months from now, you know, we could be right back here again. I may be naive, but I just feel a tipping point. I, I feel something has changed. And uh, Obama said it. Um, he said he's never seen social protests in this country in his lifetime that has looked like this uh, with the diversity of the crowds. Luther Campbell mentioned it on this podcast last week that he's never seen white Americans stand up um, uh, for blacks the way we're seeing now. So you know, uh, keep hope alive is, is really the, the mantra here, I guess, because uh, if anything good's going to come out of this, it's going to be real change. All right. Let's, right, let's, let's talk to Miguel. Going. I want to have some fun. Yeah, let's get going. Um, I've already told you a lot about Ron McGill. You already know a lot about Ron McGill, but one thing I can tell you, I think you're going to know something more about him after you've heard this. Ron, thank you for being back on the podcast with us this week. We didn't get enough of you last week, and, uh, and there's so many things I want to talk with you about. Uh, and, and I promise this will not be a typical uh, Ron McGill interview where I ask you who would win a fight between a polar bear and an and a, uh, elderly lion. I want to start with how you met your wife, because I've heard that uh, there's an interesting story that, uh, that might involve an animal. It did. You know, Greg, I was doing a, uh, a television commercial, and I was moving a crocodile back in the days when I was handling animals. You know, I, I did a lot of the animal handling, for instance, for the show Miami Vice. I handled Elvis the alligator. Anytime you saw an animal there, I was usually working on that show. Right, but right. I also did some commercial activity with some animals. And this one commercial was for, for a product called Crocodile Mile. It was one of these slip and slide type things. And they <laughs> wanted a live crocodile in it. So I, I, I bought this crocodile. It wasn't a big crocodile. It was only about six feet long. And I bought this crocodile. But you know, 
was in my early 20s, Greg. And listen, you deal enough with young guys, you know, these testosterone-driven athletes that think they're invisible and they can do anything and uh, sometimes get a little cocky. Well, that was me. And I just was not paying as much attention as I should have working with this crocodile. And one of the restraints failed, and the crocodile grabbed me in the hand. My hand in his mouth, and I got bitten pretty badly. We had to put a shovel in his mouth to open his hand to get open his mouth so I could get my hand out. I had to go to the hospital, and they performed surgery on my hand to fix up my hand because it was bitten up there kind of badly. And um, I'm thinking to myself, and I know this is going to be politically incorrect. Forgive me for this, but I'm just I'm I'm a totally transparent guy. I'm thinking I'm going to have that really hot nurse in that little white skirt outfit taking care of me, and it's going to be a fantasy for me, right? Every guy my age has dreamed about having this nurse come in in the evening and take care of him and hold his hand. It's going to be beautiful. So I'm waiting. I have surgery. I got a cast down to my elbow. I'm in the bed after surgery. I'm kind of woozy. My nurse walks in. It's a guy, and he's not a very nice guy. He was a guy that was just – he would wake me up to give me sleeping pills, Greg, and I'm thinking, this is not working out according to plan. You know, but my, yeah, my father always used to say, listen, Ron, there's a good reason for every bad thing that happens. You just got to wait and find out what it is. So a couple of days into my hospital stay, they had to wheel me down into physical therapy um, to get physical therapy, to start learning how to use my hand. And I went into the physical therapy wing there, and the door opened, and this woman walked in, Greg, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. She was so beautiful, I thought I was an angel. And she came up to me, she goes, hi, I want to be part of your therapy team. And all I did was, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Make a long story short, a year later, I married her, and now I get therapy for free. Wow. And, and uh, in addition to thanking God, you should have been thanking the crocodile, oddly enough. I, I still do thank that crocodile. That crocodile's still alive. He's about 12 feet long now, but he's still alive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You mentioned Miami Vice. I think you also, didn't you have something to do with uh, the, the epic Disney film, The Lion King? Absolutely. That was probably one of my proudest moments. Um, I was contacted, gosh, forget what the year was, uh, when they were planning the film by Disney Animation. They said, listen, we're planning a new film. Still on the QT, we're not telling anybody about it. Uh, they hadn't even named it yet. They were telling me the storyline was basically going to be, um, what's the, the, the Shakespeare play, but with animals. And we'd like to have our animators come down to the zoo if you could work with them and work with the animals so they could practice on drawing the animals to see how the animals move. And um, I said, sure. And I hosted the animators down here for several days. They came down, stayed at hotels, came down to the buses. And I worked with the animals, having them move them. And they're out there drawing. And Greg, I was so amazed. You know, you talk about talent. These guys would sit there. They don't do that anymore because of computers. But back then, they would draw on the paper. And then they draw another paper. And then they draw another paper. And then they take it and they'd flip it. And they go, and you see the animal move. It was oh, wow. like, how do you do that in your head where you're drawing from one page to the next page? And they go, and the animal starts walking. I was like, amazing. So anyway, I had no idea what it was going to be. They did it. And then all of a sudden, uh, I hear about this big thing, the Lion King, you know. I know, it's Hamlet. They told me that the Lion King is basically Hamlet using animals. It's the story of Hamlet using animals. And I said, wow. And I got this invitation. By then, my son had been born. He was a year old. Disney sent me an invitation for me and my wife and my baby to fly us up to Orlando for the premiere of Lion King in Orlando Studios. I met with all of the big wigs there. I mean, all the stars were there. And they presented me, I have it hanging in my office. At that opening, they presented me a poster, the opening poster of Lion King, signed by all the animators and the actors. I had it hanging in my office. And you know, then, as you know, the movie became this huge hit, became the favorite movie of both of my kids. And uh, there's a lot of meaning behind it. So again, it's this, this roll of the dice that I've been so lucky in my life to be in the right place at the right time. That is such a cool story. And, and I'm imagining now that 
Mufasa ended up looking like Mufasa based on a majestic male lion at Zoo Miami. Exactly. Uh, Puma did too. The only one that they didn't use that from here was the meerkats. I believe they were using the meerkats uh, in Los Angeles Zoo. The Los Angeles team that was out there uh, working the meerkats. So they used a lot of the animals here, but a lot of the animals at the Los Angeles Zoo too. Ron, one of the fascinating things about you and your life is that because of people's love for animals, you've come into contact with a bunch of celebrities and animal-loving athletes. Drop a few names for us. Who, who are some of the people that, that you've met through what you do for a living? One of the, the key people that I'll never forget, and he's still a friend, as a matter of fact, he just FaceTimed me the other night, Shaquille O'Neal. When he was here playing for the Heat, he loved animals. He had seen me on Good Morning America do something, so he came to see me, and he came to see me because he wanted to buy a tiger. I said, Shaquille, you don't want to buy a tiger? Yeah, no, no, I won't buy a tiger. No, I'll pay you. You take care of it. I just want to have it. You know, I want to let do it with the tigers. And I go, Shaq, you don't want to buy a tiger. That's stupid. You want to be like Mike Tyson because Mike Tyson had a tiger at the time or something like that. Please, Shaq, do not buy a tiger. That's for stupid people who buy things like tigers. So he didn't buy the tiger. He just FaceTimed me the other night because of all this Tiger King crap coming out. He was actually on that show for like a few, a few seconds because he went to visit that place. And he, he FaceTimed me and goes, man, I can't thank you enough for telling me not to do that because I would have looked bad now. I would have thought, no, you're right. You're, I'm, I'm never going to do that again. I, I, and he gave me his book, you know, Shaq, Uncut, whatever. And he signed it. He goes, when he signed it, he goes, I still want my tiger. And then he got the book, but he goes, no, not really. You know, so Shaq was one. LeBron was a guy who was not very comfortable with snakes. And I bought this big python to a Heat Family Fest. And UD loves snakes. So UD would always come to me and grab the snake and he'd go chase Wade because Wade was so afraid of snakes. It was almost, he would scream like a little girl. And we cha they chase him all over the place. That was a big thing with Wade and snakes. Um, and he hates birds too. I found out, uh, I think it was UD that told me that at Atlanta, when they play the Hawks, you know, they fly a hawk in the arena before the games. Right. Wade would stay in the locker room until the hawk flew before he'd come out to the court. That's how uneasy he was around birds. But anyway, I got LeBron, I got the picture hanging up in my office here. Hold on a second. So I got UD to convince LeBron, you see, to oh put my. the snake around his neck. So it's a big snake there. And they both, you know, I took the picture, they both signed, I put it up in my room. Uh, and, and, and LeBron after that considered the snake kind of lucky because they won the championship that year. And they won it again after I bought the snake back, you know. So it was kind of good. That's a great story. <laughs> you are a man of, uh, of majestic height. Uh, what are you, six, seven? Yeah, about six, seven, six, 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 seven. I, I've been in your company and, uh, and look up to you both uh, physically and, uh, and otherwise. And um, can it be true that uh, as a kid you were bullied in school because of your height? Greg, I had a tough, tough childhood. I grew up in New York City. I was very, very tall, always the tallest in my class. Because I was the tallest in my class, I really hit the books because people made fun of me. They called me Lurch. They called me uh, Frankenstein. They called me Magilla Gorilla. Kids today won't recognize that. I was an old cartoon back then. They called me Magilla. I remember. Yeah, Magilla Gorilla. And I really got a complex. I got so upset about it. Plus, my father was Cuban. My first language was Spanish. And when you spoke Spanish up in New York, you were mocked. They called me Spick. They called me all kinds of things. So I kind of reverted into books. I just reverted into my studies. That's what I had. I did so well that I actually skipped the fourth grade. And that was even worse, Greg, because now I was in a class with people who were a year older than I was. I was expected to be like them. I wasn't like them. I wasn't near mature enough. And I really, I had a tough time. We moved down to Florida. I was still very, I was a recluse. I was, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm, Six seven now, six six now. I weigh two hundred thirty five pounds. When I came moved down to Florida, I went to 
junior high school then and then high school, I was 6'5", 170 pounds, Greg. So, I mean, I could lose a few pounds, but I'm not obese. So imagine me now 65 pounds lighter than I am now. I mean, I look like a Biafran poster child, and it was just horrible. So I really had a horrible insecurity complex until I was walking in my high school hallway one day, and the basketball coach came up to me and says, you're trying out for basketball. I go, I can't even walk. I mean, I had no coordination. I was, I was, it was so embarrassing. I had no coordination, nothing. I remember trying out, and he said, take a layup. You know, and everybody's at trial, so they're all getting in line, taking their layups. I took a layup. I tripped, and I fell. I didn't even get to the basket. Well, make a long story short, all of a sudden, they put up the list of who made the team, and I'm on the list. And I go, what is going on here? And I go into him because now all the other guys who are much better than I was that didn't make the team, now they're calling me all kinds of obscene names, but mama's boy, coach's boy, you know, P-boy, all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, I go to the coach, I go, coach, he goes, you need to toughen up and I need to tell you something. From a coach who I've admired all of my life, he goes, you can't coach height. You'll grow into that body and I will work with you. I promise you. And I tell you something, Greg, on a very strong sports note, Jay Bouton, was a coach at Miami Palmetto Senior High School. That man changed my life. He pulled me out of the hallway. I couldn't do anything in the beginning. After every practice, he spent at least one, but usually two hours every day after practice working with me one-on-one. And then he would drive me home literally 20 miles, okay, on dirt roads because I lived out in the Redland. On dirt roads, that coach drove me home every day. To this day, he is one of my most greatest influences as a person I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to. And when people say that sports are not important, I tell you sports changed my life in that way because not only did I make the team and become a decent player, I mean, I was kind of an honorable mention all-city player when I got out. I had several scholarship offers around the country. I walked on at Florida when I got up there. I, I learned about being a team. I learned how to work together. And most importantly, I learned about discipline. I learned about discipline and I learned, it kept me out of trouble. You know, Greg, I, you know, Dan makes fun of me all the time. I've never had an alcoholic drink in my life. I've never, really? touched, I've never touched a cigarette or anything like a cigarette in my life. I've never even had a cup of coffee in my life. And that what? all stems from basketball because coach said, listen, he, would, he says, I know this sounds cliche, but your body's your temple, man. You've got to take care of yourself and take care of yourself now and keep those habits now. It'll be easier for the rest of your life. And, he's, and he was right. You know, listen, I'm 60 years old. I could be in better shape, but I look at a lot of people my age and I'm thinking, I could be there too. Yeah, I I too have a a story like that. There was a high school teacher I had um, who I credit my entire career for. I I joined the high school newspaper because a friend of mine was was on it, you know, just as a lark. And she immediately identified a writing skill in me and nurtured that and encouraged me to go to college and nobody in my family had ever been to college. And I don't think if I didn't have her, uh, I don't definitely don't think I would have had the career that I'm having. So. Oh, God bless her because Cody, again, you write incredibly. You are are an incredible writer and that is a gift because I couldn't do that with a gun to my head. I couldn't get halfway what you do. And Dan's the same way. I mean, the two of you, I feel so privileged to call you friends because I look at what you write and the people that you can influence with the way you write. It's a special gift, my friend. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I'm going to insist that uh, Christopher leave every, every bit of that praise in the podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, when, uh, when you were telling that story earlier, um, it's an amazing coincidence because I too have never had a drink of alcohol in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> that, um, that, that was so funny to me, I could barely get it out. <laughs> now, my mother-in-law recently got me a bug zapper, like a tennis racket style bug zapper. And I just want to know if I'm allowed to enjoy doing it as much as I do. I love when a bug, a bug gets in my house now. I, get it, I trap it in my bathroom with all the white walls so he has nowhere to go. I'm telling you, Ron, I wish <laughs> see the joy that I get out of this. I wish I had a video of you doing it. <laughs> oh, my God. It is just amazing. Now, so, so I guess by your laughter, I'm, I, you're totally cool with me doing this. And do Listen, you, you zap bugs? Let, let, me, let, me, let me be totally honest and transparent with you. You know, I've always said this. Extremism in any form is dangerous. People come up to me and go, oh, no, no, it deserves to live. No, there's a circle of life, okay? If you're a roach and you're in my house, I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to think twice about it, okay? I got no problem with that. And the fact that you're doing it with the bug zapper is great because it's quick and it's humane. It may look a little violent, but, man, it's, it's, it's over. It's fried, okay? It's fried. You know, as opposed to these people who get their flies and they catch them and then they pull the wing off and they let it walk around the rest of its life until something eats or it dies of starvation. Okay, I don't believe in that kind of cruelty, but, yes, Insects that are not supposed to be in the house, yes, okay. Uh, now, having said that, if you got a spider in the corner, that might be doing something good for you. So don't, don't freak out with the spider. But roaches, no. I hate roaches. I hate roaches. I hate flies. Ron, um, I, I wanted to ask you, you were um, born to a, a father born in Cuba. And um, I think you visited Cuba for the first time, was it four years ago about, or about four so? Years ago, about four years ago. And, and I'm, I'm wondering about that. I'm very curious because being from Miami, yeah. That had to be a little bit controversial, and it, was, and it also had to be exceptionally emotional. Uh, what, what was that trip like for you? It was more than a little controversial, let's put it that way. Uh, when the, the mayor's office found out I was going, they said I, I should not go. Uh, they knew better than to tell me I better not go. Um, I said, I'm going to go as a private citizen. And the answer came back to me, well, everybody knows who you are, and they're just going to say, whatever it is, listen, I was invited there. Uh, the first time as a guest of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums for all of Latin America that has their national, international conference in a different city each year. The year before, it was in Santiago, Chile. Then it was in Buenos Aires. That year, it happened to be in Havana. And I was invited to be a speaker to speak about the conservation programs that I do and this and that. And I said, I'm going. And they said, you can't go. You're, you're helping the, the Cuban government. I go, listen, let me be very clear with you. The animals in Cuba are not communists, they're not Democrats, they're not Republicans, okay? They're animals. They don't recognize political boundaries, they don't recognize politics at all. And those animals were there way before that regime ever was. Those animals are part of Cuban heritage. My father's a Cuban, it's part of his heritage, and in turn it's part of my heritage. I've never been to this island that is the land of my father. I'm going, I'm going to present there, and that's it. And, well, I got a tongue lashing because the mayor would not approve me going or anything like that. And I've got to really tip my hat to one of your colleagues. Uh, Fabiola Santiago wrote a wonderful column as a Cuban-American herself saying that what I did was for nature, was for heritage, had nothing to do with politics. And to put politics into it, to kind of bend over for extremist exiles uh, was wrong. And that really kind of sealed the lid, Greg. I mean, I never had any problems after that. I brought my mother back after that because one of my mother's Biggest wishes. She had not been there since 1959 when she honeymooned with my father. And uh, she wanted to go back to see those places that she went to. And I bought my mother there, landed in Havana, rented a car, uh, and went with a, a guide all the way across the country to Santiago. And my mom was in tears on many occasions in pure joy and emotion. Uh, I felt closer to my dad. One of the things I realized, Greg, is that 
when I went in there, I couldn't believe how many times I was recognized. First of all, I, I'm walking down the streets of Little Havana and people are screaming from the balconies, Romagil, Romagil. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Because they all watch that Sao Gigante show. Even though it's illegal to watch it, they all got this thing called a paquete. They get these little thumb drives that have all the shows on them. So they watch them all anyway. So people are coming down and they're all taking their pictures with me. They're inviting me to eat dinner when they don't really have enough food to kind of feed their families. And they're giving me things. People are inviting me to restaurants and the restaurant owner refused to charge me for anything. No, you're our guest. We can't believe you're here. This is great. And you know, whereas I originally used to think that my dad's humor and the way he spoke and stuff was what he got from being in New York City because he moved to New York when he was 17, I realized, no, it was his Cuban heritage. I saw my dad's face in those people so many times, Greg. And I realized that the real Cuba is not that regime. It's not the politics. It's, it's a, a, a people that are so incredibly generous, so loving, and unfortunately struggling so much. And, and the other thing I really realized is my dad only had a third grade education, but yet he was the smartest man I ever knew, Greg. Smartest man I ever knew. My dad had the most incredible common sense, did things. He was, he resolved everything. And I realized he got that as a Cuban because I would go down to Cuba and I'd see like these beautiful old American cars, right? I was like, oh my God, there's 57 Chevys, incredible. And they'd open the hood and it's this Russian engine put together with paper clips and scotch tape and hoses and stuff. I'm thinking, how do you make this thing work? I mean, it's incredible what need necessitates people to do. And that's what they did. I am so thankful I took those trips. I am so thankful I saw this place because it made me better understand who I am. Are you an emotional man? Because there had to have been tears when you're driving your, quick, mo your mother around. I'm a very emotional man, Greg. And I cried many times. Uh, I, you know, to this day, it's, it's a very strong strong thought process for me when I go back and I think about the places we went to. I saw my mom overcome with emotion. My wife was with me and she was overcome with emotion. You know, Greg, at the end of the day, I try to tell people this all the time. It sound, and it sounds so cliche-ish, but it's so true. People get so caught up in how much money they have in the bank and, uh, you know, what kind of car they're driving and what kind of house they live in. And I tell people all the time, I've never seen anybody buried with their car, their money, their house. When you leave this earth, it's, it's what you got in here, the memories that you have, you know, the experiences that you have. And those experiences, all the money in the world, I wouldn't trade them for because um, they're special. They, they remind me who I am. And now, as you know, as I get old and you start really maybe starting to understand your mortality, you start trying to get all these things done. Uh, again, I grew up in a small apartment in New York City, Jackson Heights. And uh, as a Cuban immigrant kid, we had one television in our house, Greg little 12 inch black and white thing. You had to change the channels like this. We only had four channels. That extendable <laughs> antenna broke after the first week. So you put a coat hanger in there to get a better reception. And I watched that show Wild Kingdom, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, every oh, Sunday yeah. at 7.30. That was yeah. my church. And I always said, since I was a little boy, that's what I want to do. I want to do what that guy Jim Fowler did. Make a long story short, I met Jim Fowler 40 years ago. He became one of my closest friends, was one of my dearest mentors until he passed away last year. And I've gotten to do all the things that Jim told me I would be able to do, you know? I've set foot on every continent except for Australia, which I was supposed to be on this year, but had to cancel because of COVID. But I'm going next year. As soon as it opens up, I'm going to Australia. And Greg, when I set foot on that seventh continent as a Cuban immigrant kid, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm done. I, I'm going to feel like, you know, I've, I've, I've just been incredibly fortunate. Well, Ron, you've, you've led a fascinating life. And um, I've, I've uh, had a bunch of guests on and uh, I don't think I've enjoyed a conversation more. I really admire you, all the work you've done. You know, Greg, I, again, at the risk of being the Mutual Admiration Society, you are a person who has been iconic, 
since I moved to Miami, you know, reading the Herald, and your words are more than just sports. You, you, you evoke emotion in people. Um, and you have a wonderful sense of humor. And the best thing about you, Greg, and I mean this in the most complimentary way, you're so wonderfully self-deprecating. <laughs> and I think that says a lot about a person. I really do. <laughs> I, I like to have fun. You know, I, 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 like, to, I like to change it up. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I want to make people smile in, in one column and uh, maybe have their eyes get moist uh, the, in the next time I write. So, it's you are successful with that, my friend. Okay. <laughs> what about me? What do you guys think about me? A lot of you guys are going back and forth. Hey, Chris, let me tell you something, buddy. I think you're one of the most underappreciated people in media today. Thank you. Okay. And yeah, you need and to tell Levitar to put that camera on your face a little bit more often because okay. you're not getting the props that you need to get for what you bring to that program. <laughs> I can also tell Christopher that uh, he's definitely one of my two favorite sons. So uh, that's, you know, take that to the bank. Uh, Ron, again, really appreciate it. Buddy, take care, be safe, and stay healthy. All right, you too. All right, take care, bye. That was a really fun interview with Ron McGill, but I must say, can you two just get over yourselves? I mean, just these compliments going back. It's just ping pong with compliments. Greg, just I want you to everyone to visualize Greg Cody and Ron McGill playing ping pong with compliments. No, you're a great writer. No, what you do with animals is amazing. No, what you, how you formulate paragraphs. It's just you're fantastic. I, I, I sort of like that, actually. Uh, you're great. I'm greater. No, you're the greatest. We should have a fist fight. Uh, he would beat me because he's like seven foot eight. Um, yeah, we needed, uh, we needed uh, a fun interview with Miguel after a very serious uh, opening uh, regarding everything going on in the country. Hey, pod listeners, uh, we're 15 in, and uh, we really thank you guys for coming back every week. Please uh, not only listen, but, but rate, subscribe, and review, and all that good stuff. And um, I meant to mention earlier, um, last week, over the weekend, we had a, another one of our Zoom invites with uh, podcast listeners. It was the second time we've done that. A lot of fun. Juju Gotti swung in. And um, I think we got something else cooked up uh, for, for listeners this week. Christopher, what do we got going on? I don't know. We're just trying to test out these promotional tactics. Just to, And we're having, like you said, we're having so much fun with these Zoom hangouts that we don't mind doing them. So why don't we just keep doing them? And, you know, it gives us some free promotion and it also allows us to hang out with some listeners. So this time we're going to angle towards Instagram. The first few have been Twitter. If you would like to hang out with Greg and I in a Zoom, uh, Zoom happy hour next weekend. We are going to select three winners, and it's people that mentioned at the Greg Cody Show on their Instagram story, and we will select three winners from those. So the most fun, unique, different ways of people doing Instagram stories, we will select them, and we will hang out with you guys next weekend. Sounds like fun. Uh, we, we've actually honestly enjoyed doing the, the first two Zoom things. Uh, hey, thanks again so much for joining us every week, my pod family. And uh, be sure to catch us again next week because it's episode sweet 16. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.